We have a big, big show for you today, ladies and gentlemen. Bitcoin is back above 26,000. There are airdrops coming and they are huge. The banks are in collapse and there is crisis all over the place. Listen, if you like this content, hit the like button, subscribe to the channel. We appreciate it. Welcome to Across the Chains. Mikey, bring us in. What's happening, guys? How's everybody doing? Oh, hey, top Good. of the morning to you, laddie. <laughs> top of the morning to you. Happy St. Patty's Day Hi. in the U.S. Buns, I like the green. I miss the off. <laughs> You don't like my green? National what about my green? <laughs> I like all Love the it. green. I, That's forest I'm, green. Hi, <laughs> right, Savaki. Welcome, buddy. Hello. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm like the awkward new kid here today. <laughs> it's, it's gonna be it's gonna be a fun one, guys. We uh, what what a week it's been since we did the show last Friday. There's been literally just you know so much. I mean, good things, bad things, all you know, just the the gauntlet of emotions, effectively. Uh, and I am excited to to get into it today. So why don't we do just that? And uh, I'm gonna pull up my screen and uh, see if we can get some screen share going here. So, you know, the first the first thing I want to start off on, like we, we really we haven't talked about Bitcoin specifically on this show all that much. You know, we talk about all the chains and all the layer ones and layer twos. Um, but I had a friend send me a text uh, when the banks were collapsing and I didn't even know that he was into crypto. And he, he sent me a picture of all these uh, gold that he was buying. He was like, should I be buying Bitcoin? And so. Uh, to me, it was an eye-opening, you know, thing that like people are starting to realize uh, the dangers out there, the pitfalls of, of uh, you know, the traditional banking system and all the stuff that we're seeing. Uh, and you know, even after USDC depegged and post the banking collapse, we saw Bitcoin go on a tear from like 19.5 to 26.5. So, um, you know, we're really seeing uh, a, a pretty amazing amount of adoption here, and I think it's you know it's starting to spread and people are starting to get it. And so, you know, I want to kick off the show by uh, kind of getting your opinion, like, is Bitcoin digital gold? Like, should people be thinking about this in that way? Uh, and do you think that, you know, people are starting to realize? And, uh, you know, Mark, why don't we kick it over to you to start? Yeah, I mean, look, I do think that the the awareness of Bitcoin and the, the trust in it is growing. I mean, as of right now, Bitcoin is a worldwide brand recognizable pretty much as Coke or Disney. Uh, so it's like it's money, but with a brand name, uh, but without the baggage of a country. Right. So if the United States goes to war or Yellen does something really stupid, uh, the, you know, the, the U.S. dollar can become ugly to some people. Right. Uh, whereas Bitcoin is just neutral. It's every country. So um, so it's it doesn't have the baggage of a country. And uh, as we've you know, as all of us know, it's the hardest money on Earth uh, at a time when banks are collapsing. And the dollar is hyperinflating. And it was, you know, it, it basically was born for this moment uh, in 2008 for exactly this purpose. So as, as you say, more people are understanding the actual value of Bitcoin. And, and I honestly think the fact that it's proof of work uh, instead of proof of stake is also playing to its strengths. Uh, proof of work is just undefeated when it comes to security 
and and possibly value. I mean, we'll see. But I think it's I think it's undefeated for value as well. So uh, and and you know, lastly, people are seeing that when you put your money in a bank, you're you're basically forced to store your money in a leveraged treasury hedge fund, right? Yeah. Now, most people didn't know that, right? And they've just <laughs> recently become conscious of that rather insane fact. So uh, where if you store your money in Bitcoin in your ledger at home, it's not in a hedge fund, right? So you don't have that counterparty risk. So, uh, and a lot of people are now finally understanding the value of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's interesting is like, we've actually seen, you know, if you look at sort of, uh, Bitcoin and gold historically, like they, they follow the same trend. And I think that's because uh, it's, you know, in, in my opinion, it's sound money. And, and people are starting to realize that. Uh, I think the biggest difference is that Bitcoin has over the last 10 years just crushed every other asset class out there in terms of value. But, uh, you know, keeping in mind that it is highly volatile. Uh, and so people, you know, people still get in and, and they, they buy in at 60K and it goes to 16, like that's still very frightening to people. So the performance of Bitcoin over the last 10 years is, you know, it speaks for itself. So, you know, curious, Nick Slovaki, like, you know, Slovaki, you, you know, you come from a finance background. Uh, you know, do you think that we're seeing institutional adoption and mainstream adoption in a way that we really haven't up to this point? I don't know. Uh, is the short answer. I think, uh, I don't think it's that simple. And um, it's actually something Nick and I spoke about over the weekend. I think, yes, something like this is the perfect advertisement that we wanted for cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and the concept of it. But a lot has happened since Bitcoin's launched. And, you know, all the bad shit that happened last year, um, like Bitcoin is tainted uh, in that sense. Does that impact adoption? I don't know. Like, um, it's it's... It's a weird position to be in. Like it is the moment that we that we all wanted for so long, but I, I'm not sure if too much damage has been done for that immediate adoption just now. It might take a bit longer, um, and lessons need to be learned. And I mean, if we're talking about like you know, it has performed it outperformed every asset class over extended period of time. But like that brought like massive, massive spikes in volatility, especially if you do that benchmarking versus gold, right? And do then people want that? Like gold over the past five years has been like a gradual increase in price if you look at the key checkpoints and Bitcoin hasn't done that. And I think it has still some work to do to get there. I'm not saying it can't, but I, yeah, I think it might be too early to tell. Um, I don't know, Nick, what do you think? Um, so <clears throat> I think Bitcoin has been, um, uh, perverted to a certain extent, um, over the last couple of years, it went up for a lot of the wrong reasons. It doesn't mean that a lot of the good reasons why we all like it and the properties that it possesses, um, disappear. But I mean, if the question is, did institutional adoption just start? No, like it, it jumped 20%. You know, it doesn't take a lot of capital for that to happen. Everything went up. So I don't think the events of the last week are any indication that there's been some seismic shift in attitude between uh, uh, from, from, you know, deep capital pools to all the pools to all of a sudden, okay, Bitcoin's the thing again. What I think it 
why I think it might be significant is, you know, Bitcoin was invented in, in during the GFC 2008, famously. In 2013, when the Cypriot banks failed and, and the EU and the Cypriot government literally took people's money out of their bank accounts, anyone that had over 100,000 euros, the deposited amount, the equivalent to the FDIC, um, they actually lost eight or 9% of their money. It was called the haircut. They literally took it and recapitalized the banks. That happened. When that happened, Bitcoin went parabolic. Um, so on Friday, when a lot of this stuff was happening, Silvergate had already shut down. It, the writing was on the wall for, 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 for Silicon Valley Bank. Bitcoin hadn't moved. Um, it hadn't even moved over the weekend. Um, it only started to move late on Sunday after Yellen got on TV um, and the confirmation came through that, that that the Fed and the FDIC was going to make all depositors whole. So I think um, in an environment where banks are failing, um, inflation is not under control and the government might have to start printing money again, um, Bitcoin should be up huge, right? But it's not. And it's not because of this baggage that it has attached to it because of the shenanigans that went on over the last 24 months. I think um, some of that baggage might start to be shed uh, and, and, and some of the promise of Bitcoin might start to become interesting again. Um, if the discussion is between Bitcoin and gold, um, Bitcoin is flat against gold uh, going back to December of 20, right? So this whole Bitcoin's outperformed everything. Yeah, pick a time frame, okay? And, and if your time frame is out two years and three months, hasn't done shit against gold. It's gone down. Um, yeah. So let's just be accurate when we're, when we're saying anything. And, and by the way, I'm not saying that Bitcoin does possess the properties to do that. I'm just looking at the numbers and telling you what has happened. Um, one of the worst things to happen, Bitcoin was going up to 69,000 on absolute rubbish. Um, and it's going to take some time to work through that. Uh, I think I mentioned this over the weekend in the Reload Discord, but I own more gold than Bitcoin as it stands today. Um, that doesn't mean I think that gold is a better asset, right? But, um, you know, nothing goes up in a straight line. You can trade these things. Uh, when Bitcoin was in the 60,000s and the 50,000s and the 40,000s, I was selling it and I was buying gold because that's what made sense to me at the time. Now, the events of the last week may alter my thought. In fact, it has altered my thought. Um, and you probably start adding more Bitcoin. But, you know, gold does very well in the environments. It does very, very well. It's an actual inflation hedge. And Bitcoin hasn't been that for, for, yep. for the longest time. So, but... I'll summarize it by just saying that um, Bitcoin just became a lot more interesting, not because yeah. of the price action, but because of the environment that we're in, the situation the governments are in, and and and, and what happens next. Um, it certainly has another chance to, 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 to be the thing that we all want it to be, but it's not that today. Okay. I mean, you know... From from a dev perspective, like Justin and, and Buns, like when, when you guys found out about Bitcoin and you got into you know programming and, and just writing code in crypto, like what what sort of like was it Bitcoin that got you in? Like what stood out to you that, that got you here? Yeah. <laughs> For me, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was also a long time ago. 
There wasn't uh, any other yeah, I mean, option. <laughs> yeah, like when for me, I, I thought that Bitcoin was an interesting idea, but as a developer, there wasn't a lot that you could do with it from a you know user perspective. Uh, you know, making apps for it, like it was, you could send stuff to people, and it took a long time. Um, and you know the the idea, like the decentralization and censorship resistance and all that stuff, is super cool. But from an app development perspective, it's like using a super slow. It, you know, it's just not. It wasn't really like an ideal development platform for me, which is partially why things like Ethereum and the EVM are more interesting because they provide a Turing complete development environment to have, you know, this distributed computing environment, which I, as a developer, is a little bit more interesting to me um that said like it's, it doesn't mean that you can't develop things for bitcoin there's people doing cool stuff with ordinals like making nfts and but it's still not really a, a programming environment um yeah to sort of i sometimes provide a more positive outlook and say i might provide a, a more negative one um compared to what what mark said uh, because you know Bitcoin does have a brand, but part of that brand is it's really wasteful in terms of energy. It's used for laundering money. It's used for drugs. It's used for like if you step outside of the like we're involved with crypto bubble, a lot of people don't have a great opinion of it. They look at it and say, "Oh, that's the asset that went from about seventy thousand down to like fifteen thousand, right? Like why would I invest in that? Well, it could go back up. You're like, well, the I could win the lottery too. So it's it's not people don't necessarily have the same perspective on it if you're not involved with with crypto day to day and if you do take a step back like crypto wasn't a super great investment over the last year it was a terrible one for most people so um you know I, just, I think it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean that bitcoin and and crypto aren't um you know going to do well and do cool things over the long term but you know and on the short term I don't necessarily know that um everyone has the same like super optimistic opinion of of crypto just, just i think that we should point. Oh, go ahead yeah. sorry buns I no, I go. <laughs> oh, okay oh i i think that um i think that it's important to recall that bitcoin's purpose is distinct from that of ethereum and tokens that exist on um, erc or evm compatible blockchains or other many other uh, alternatives to Ethereum. Ethereum doubts itself as ultra sound money, whereas Bitcoin is sound money. What does sound money mean? Fun fact: It's because a, a sound money is is money that makes a sound whenever you drop it, right? It's like gold or silver. These things that are actually stable in their value. Why? Because they act as a storage of value. And that's effectively what is the benefit of having Bitcoin in the first place. And Bitcoin, of course, is going to be more susceptible to volatility because of the market cap of Bitcoin relative to market caps of giants like gold, right? However, I believe that if you believe in the future of digitalization, period, if you believe that the future is digital, then it is, it's hard for you to also on the same hand, make an argument um, against the, the overriding potential for Bitcoin. I mean, even looking at, I understand that there's been some detriment in terms of what we might've perceived as Bitcoin versus gold. However, even looking at like at the beginning of this year, it was like a nine 
ratio of Bitcoin to gold. And now it's 13 at this month. I mean, that's a significant, it's like 25% increase over this past few months. So let's not undermine that. I think that there still is value in having Bitcoin. Personally, I have more Bitcoin than gold. I'm not Peter Schiff. It's nice to see that his doppelganger is here, <laughs> Nick. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> You make such a order. great point. If you if you believe the future is digital, if you think that Fed now, whatever that's going to be, whether it's a, a shift from the SWIFT system to something else, or if it's you know CBDCs coming, like whatever whatever it may be, if you believe that the, the future is digital money, then in my opinion, Bitcoin is going to be the digital gold. It's proving itself out to be that, uh, and the properties that it possesses. Um, cannot be replicated and they, and they well they can be but they will not be it is so far ahead of everything else um that i think that people are, are waking up to that fact whether they you know the volatility is it's a super i mean it's a young asset class it's only been around for you know what a decade like like you're gonna see crazy swings in something and it's not that you know the market cap isn't that big to your point bun so uh so i think people are waking up to, to the to you know what the potential is here uh i do think the future is transitioning to like a digital dollar type uh, environment which is kind of frightening uh, and i sent mark the uh, the fed now documents on uh on wednesday and we were kind of reading through them simultaneously but in different locations uh and there's a lot there and it's uh and, and so we can probably talk about that on a future episode but so the one thing i want to ask and, and honestly i'm gonna i'm gonna kick this to to mark and suvaki and then we got to move on uh it you know, we would be remiss to not at least talk about the dpeg of usdc uh, effectively, there was a bank run on Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, Circle, who controls USDC, had $3 billion in that bank. That left a hole in their balance sheet, obviously spooked the hell out of the entire ecosystem. Uh, and USDC depegged on Friday of last week down to $0.87. Cents. And it was quite a frightening event. Like, I was, you know, I'm sure we were all sitting there just hoping that things were going to get rectified uh, by the Fed. But I guess my question to, to you, Mark and Savaki, like, what's what is, is there anything that can stop Bitcoin? Like, is that a, a cataclysmic event that would, you know, wreck the industry if we if we lost USDC as a you know the oh. second largest stablecoin? Yeah, I think I mean I, I think that Bitcoin needed stable coins in order for it to get, kind of get off the ground and boot itself up. Um, stable coins were clearly um, huge a huge influence on its adolescence. Um, but I think now that the brand has been established, um, it, it would be bad if USDC or the stablecoin universe vanished, uh, but it wouldn't be catastrophic. It wouldn't kill Bitcoin. So it wouldn't be good for Bitcoin, but it wouldn't kill it. Yep. Yeah, I think Mark, Mark sums it up quite nicely. I think ultimately, if you look before the time of USDC, Bitcoin has been around, you know, for, for many, many years uh, before that. And I mean, what would happen in the current market environment in those times? People would off ramp, right? They still wouldn't hold Bitcoin because it wasn't an alternative. So stable coins help uh, the wider industry, I think, um, keep their money within crypto, uh, helping the overall market cap of the entire industry and help bu building it out. Uh, yes, USDC can be, uh, you know, it was scary and I think, you know, I, I ran for the hills, right? I, I I was very public in that, you know, I off-ramped completely, like the uncertainty was just too much. And I think this is, this is a lesson to many about diversification, about, you know, no 
if if USDC, whose one sole purpose, well, not its only, but it's one of its biggest purposes is to be pegged one-to-one -to, -one to the dollar, can take a 10% hit at any point in time, I get to listen to all of us in terms of risk diversification. And one of the things that came out of it, and Mark actually did like a wonderful thread on it, is you know, the decentralized options that are out there as an alternative to USDC. And I think that will be one, you know, in the future, when you look back at this event, like that will be one of the great takeaways is it's encouraging us to maybe challenge ourselves in terms of ease and look at what is actually uh, more risk, uh, more resilient to, to, to risk attacks like that. Yep. V very well said. And I think that that was, that was the biggest, takeaway for me as well like having having our stablecoin uh ecosystem tied to the dollar is not the right path forward and it's you know it's just it, it's open to so much systemic risk risk which we're facing right now so uh well thank you guys. i mean just as i just want to add though like it was a 10 percent drop on a bunch of people freaking out over the weekend when when banks are closed versus like a 90 percent drop in crypto so i don't know if it's fair to say that like as an asset class you know, it's it's like highly, you know, susceptible to volatility. It, it also went back up to a dollar. Like Circle said they were going to redeem it the whole time. Banks were closed, so on and so forth. I mean, the reason you see like market volatility is because the market was volatile. People were all freaking out. The world was blowing up. Let's just call it what yeah. it was. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I right. got messages so, from well, but people it, but it, like... Well, no, no. I mean, it was a chicken little <laughs> situation. The sky was falling. Yeah. But then it wasn't. Well, the sky really uh, was falling, and then we stopped <laughs> it from falling. So I yeah. don't think it well, was right, like, but, a, yeah. Well, but like it's that—that's like saying that my roof is always falling, but it's held up by the walls of my house. Like technically true, but like mm. I, I mean, I, that's I, this, not what that's, happened. No, that, this but was it's, a very significant, crazy event uh, over the weekend. <laughs> no, no, I, I agree with that. But all of all of this stuff, I mean, even like sound money talking about. Uh, Bitcoin being a store of value, money is a social construct. The reason we think Bitcoin is the store of value for crypto is because all the crypto people have decided that that's true. Um, we could all decide that it's not true and invest in something else, and that becomes the store of value also. Do you know it's, what fiat like, means? There, uh, by decree. Let it be, right? It's just, yeah. No, no it, means, made it, up. Means by, made up. it means by decree. Like, so that you're, it's full faith in credit of the government, yada, yada, yada. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you could take a different, uh, like you could fork Bitcoin to make Bitcoin, you know, whatever. And everyone agrees that that one's now awesome. I mean, they've, but they've done that. And like, did, but, that's, and that's my point though. Like, yeah. ev because everyone didn't agree that it was awesome. It didn't take off. Like it's, it's a large portion of this is just based on like everyone i mean that's this is sort of my feelings yeah, on all uh, technical analysis yeah. but that's, well, true I mean, that's of sort of yeah, yeah. yeah. that's game what theory of all, all money though, like... <laughs> right that's i mean th this is my point though is like it is all even with uh gold as a physical asset if we all decided that gold wasn't useful it wouldn't be worth anything so it's it, it really is all there's like a, a large social aspect to all of this too and when people are all deciding that the U.S. dollar isn't as good as it used to be. That makes it true because you know the the value of the dollar is literally based in uh, you know the, the like social construct, like Blunt was pointing out. But I, I do think um, you know I, I do think that stable coins are, are very important for crypto overall because that provides a bridge between the different markets. Um, yeah, so that's like. 
if you couldn't get your dollars out, then I think that would be uh, you know, would be a lot less appealing to the masses if, if you just had to hold this asset and it went up and down well, and watch that happen. I mean, unless you could actually, unless you could spend right. Phantom or Avalanche or Ethereum or Bitcoin or whatever on your mortgage, on your food, on your utilities, then it doesn't matter as much anymore. But I think the reason it's so important right now is because we are still in the, like, I think Mark was right that it's important in the nascent, um, part of a, a, a the development of crypto, but I don't know that we're actually fully out of that. I mean, the Bitcoin market cap is like 500 billion or 600 billion or something like that. And JP Morgan Chase has $3.7 trillion. Like that's one bank with significantly more market cap. So it's still relatively small uh, relative to the size of the financial market. And so I, that's why I do think it's really important to have the the bridges and once you have adoption and you're actually using it for you know paying bills and stuff like that then i think it doesn't matter as much yep well uh we're glad usdc repegged because i think that's pretty important and uh and you know i was happy to see bitcoin going up after a uh, banking collapse so uh an exciting announcement came out yesterday uh from arbitrum and the long-awaited airdrop is finally here and, you know, I think that, you know, a lot of people are, are, are super, you know, uh, are, have been looking forward to this for a long time. And, and I would kind of con like consider airdrops like the, the STEMI checks of, uh, of crypto. And so I'm just <laughs> curious, like Arbitrum has seen a massive amount of adoption. They have really like as far as L2s go for Ethereum, they have, uh, you know, kind of led the pack. And so I'm just curious, like, you know, do you guys think that as, like a token airdrop is a big deal for them moving forward in terms of them having, you know, their own uh, value currency? Does it grow the ecosystem? Like, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, Mark, we'll kick it over to you. Yeah, I mean, the, the airdrops have typically, been, you know, it's sort of like a movie opening, right? You want to have some sort of big event that spotlights whatever it is you're doing. The Uniswap airdrop was the one that always sticks in my mind is... Uh, excellent. It was significant. I mean, everybody got like four or 5k or 10k or something like that. So it wasn't like, you know, 30 bucks. Um, so everybody felt really good. Uh, and, and it was very widely distributed too. There were a lot of people that got that amount of money. Um, and, and it basically tended to focus everyone's energy on Uniswap for some period of time. So I think it's like a movie opening. You have to, you want to basically get a bunch of people there and then you want to keep them there. So you got to have something significant going on. Um, I don't know if Arbitrum does or not. It might. It's definitely got a lot of heat um, in, in the DeFi world, even without this airdrop. Um, so, I, you know, I think it's I think it's a thing. I think it's something. Um, I actually I'm in an, I'm in on Vesta, which is one of the alternate stable coins over there. Um, and uh, and I've been playing around over there. And yet my my address was not eligible for the airdrop I discovered. Uh, which surprised yeah. me. So I don't know. I, so I was my my own reaction was I don't know what I had to do to get eligible for this airdrop. I've definitely been a user of their ecosystem, um, you know, and I, I, I that tells me there's probably a lot of people that are going to be semi pissed that they're also not uh, getting airdrops from Arbitrum. Um, the, the the actual total number was six hundred twenty five thousand addresses that were cleared, which was like twenty eight percent of the addresses. Um, so I, I don't know. It's hard for me to tell yet whether this is botched or not. Um, but, but look, airdrops in, in general, I'm, I'm a fan. I think they're great things. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, Slovakia, 625,000 addresses get a brand new token that's now on the market. It's going to have, you know, perceived value of, of whatever the, uh, you know, the price is at launch. 
Do you think that that's a event that like basically spreads liquidity out that didn't formally exist? And, and I mean, basically like poof, there's just a bunch of additional tokens on market uh, and it could be a bullish catalyst for crypto. Do you, do you agree? Yeah. I mean, creating value out of nothing, right? Just magic. To oh, well, not out of nothing. Like the market needs to determine what the value of those tokens are. If everyone decides they're worth zero, then there's no value to them. You got may as well just done nothing with that. And I think, you know, the next few months for them will be quite interesting because I think a lot of the traction you see on the network right now is because many people were kind of expecting this through you know their multiple campaigns that they've had like they, although they never publicly said it everyone kind of thought it was coming because you know if we look across the board a lot of networks do it and it's kind of cyclical like so if we look just it's not that long ago that polygon avalanche and phantom that or phantom v1 incentives they were all over sort of overlapping at the same time and now there's some traction going out there in terms of cover incentives Verachain, um, Phantom's uh, gas monetization program. So there's another kind of cycle of, um, well, from a financial sense, another kind of cycle of incentives that's coming in. So the timing does kind of sync up with whatever's going on there. And I also think, so yes, it's a great stimulus, but I also think it might be precaution to keep that momentum because if all other networks are not giving a ton of incentives, they might see TVL flow out. Um, so in um, there, there's there's a few elements at play yet. Yeah, and the next few months will be interesting. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and you know, anytime you print anything out of thin air and that that liquidity flows into the market, I, I would imagine it to be a positive for the the industry. Uh, Mr. Dracon, what do you think, buddy? Um, well, it can't it can't be negative, right? A bunch of people got money that they didn't have. Uh, previously, um, whether they keep those tokens or sell those tokens, that most of that money is probably going to stay within the DeFi ecosystem. It'll be, you know, swapped to other tokens, deposited on DEXs, uh, uh, you know. So it, 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 is, it is somewhat of the equivalent of, you know, QE for the, yep. for, for, for the, for the DeFi space. Um, Except that it didn't cost anybody anything, it didn't cost task payers anything, and and uh, it's not going to lead to hyperinflation that's going to end up in some disastrous <laughs> cases. So, yeah, yeah, man, airdrop it, keep Air dropping drop. it. Airdrop, um, I, 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 you know, I usually have something negative to say about most things. I don't really <laughs> care. Like, you know, if, if they give these tokens away and everyone dumps them, great. Some people got some value and some people got less value. And, and it all stays within the ecosystem. So um, I'm all for it. You know, hopefully it, it, it drives up some activity, whether it's on Arbitrum or elsewhere. Yeah, amen. So uh, Double Sharp and Buns, I want to kick it over to you guys. So, you know, something that I, I kind of can see developing, I think we probably all can. So Arbitrum versus Optimism isn't even close in terms of adoption. Uh, Arbitrum Active Address is 2x, Transactions 2.5x, Smart Contracts Deployed 4x. Uh, and they're absolutely um, leading in the TVL metric, which, you know, take that as you would, you know, kind of with a grain of salt, I suppose. But, you know, still a big deal, um, you know, from a technical perspective, if, you know, if you look at the, you know, they're both layer twos, they both are going to help scale Ethereum. Um, you know, do you think that one has a leg up on the other? I look at things like Coinbase and them and them launching coin as as a super chain on top of the OP stack, like, 
you know, like how would you break this all down if you were trying to compare the two when you have people positioning one as like way ahead of the other? Pull up that double tweet, sharp. double sharp. <laughs> yeah, so I, I um, did a little bit of research on this uh, in preparation for, for this topic because uh, I, I, you know, I think my understanding of them was was from a higher level. Like I knew that they're both optimistic roll-ups, um, but didn't really know much about the, the actual differences. In digging into it, I found a blog post from a dev on one side and then a response from a dev on the other side. And for the most part, they are very similar, you know, being optimistic roll-ups that, you know, optimistic means that you're generally assuming that the transactions are valid and then um, you have witnesses observing and if they if somebody sees a problem, they're able to submit a fraud proof. And then if that fraud proof, you know, shows that the transaction was fraudulent, then it rolls back um, for the, or in theory would roll back or, or something because this has never happened before. And to some extent, um, even though, you know, the development is pretty far along with these, there still aren't um, there's still not a set path for how a lot of this stuff works. There's, it's still kind of up in the air, still being developed, still being worked on. Um, I think, you know, from a high level, one of the, you know, technical differences that users would see um, is that the Arbitrum blocks are variable and up to four per second, um, whereas the optimism side of things is two second blocks. Those come with different trade-offs on the you know, the infrastructure technical side of things. But from a user perspective, faster blocks means that you should see faster confirmations, assuming, assuming they're able to, you know, make that all work. If there's networking issues or something, then maybe the two second blocks are actually what you want because they're more reliable. So I think time will sort of tell, um, tell with that. Other than that, a lot of it does just come down to the technical details that users aren't necessarily going to see in terms of how transactions are verified and how fraud proofs are are uh, checked and how the the you know different bytecode is processed um, in the fraud proofs and how they're reading data out of call data on the L1 and how they're handling blocks and block uh, numbers and things like that. But otherwise, you know, from a user perspective, I think they are going to be very similar. You are rolling up to Ethereum still, so. I think that's why I think something like faster confirmations might be a differentiator when it comes uh, to users, because that's something that they're going to feel when they click a button. Um, so if that is faster, I think that would be be a difference. That said, the optimism bedrock stuff is a lot more, I don't want to say simple, but it's, it's less complex than what Arbitrum is doing, which means that there's some things that are maybe not as dialed in, but it's a lot easier to maintain. They're, they're able to develop uh, more clients for it, things like that. Whereas on the Arbitrum side, they are kind of pushing the limits a little bit more because of that, they need to maintain a lot of extra state data. Um, they, they're they not able to use Geth directly as a client. They're using it as an external library for their client, things like that. So, um, uh, you know, I do think it's, it's interesting to me that, you know, that base would choose one over the other. But I also think it's a little bit too too soon to tell which one's gonna ultimately end up being um, technically superior or just went out from user adoption. Um, and then the other, you know, big open question is where ZK rollups uh, end up playing into this. Um, you know, Polygon is working on theirs and 
there's Starknet, all the and a few others. Yeah, I was gonna say all the other ones. Yeah, but they're not really like they're just now starting to come out. So the OP or uh, I'm sorry, the OR optimistic rollouts have a head start in terms of you know real world usage, but zk I think is going to catch up in the next you know six months to a year, and then I think that's going to be an interesting um, factor to consider also, but. You know, in general, they're making it rain tokens that they made up that people are deciding are worth something. So, you know, and, you know, we're talking about it. it I, I do think just from a marketing perspective, like you do an airdrop, you get a lot of press. It's there's tweets. People talk about it on podcasts, you know, whether it ends up making everyone a ton of money or not. Part of what they're paying for is the the marketing campaign. They're trying to drive adoption. So whether people end up dumping the token or not you have to end up on their network to do stuff like that. So they are, you know, still uh, incentivizing activity and, and, you know, generally promoting the network by doing this. So yeah. from, a, well, I mean, from their side, it makes done the same thing. Like they, they have more totally. so given the tokens to protocols like Velodrome and, and others to, to incentivize activity on that or funds, you know, optimism seems like a more, a more out of the box scalable solution. Like it's something that, you know, institutions, enterprises, et cetera, can grab and say, we're just going to build on this. Like that seems to be the purpose. You know, what did you see from kind of evaluating the two? Yeah, I think that there's a number of things that are important when it comes from a development perspective. One of them is, of course, being able to use your existing infrastructure and easily navigate into a new network um, and not have to make too many changes. Uh, one of the useful things about Arbitrum is the bridging. Um, you can It supports native ERC-20 bridging. Um, it also has, um, it's just more superior in terms of interoperability. It has a unified uh, permissionless bridge versus um, just uh, Optimism, which has a dedicated bridges that are built on demand. So that's a huge, um, a huge stalemate when it comes to trying to get more uh, consumers. And I believe this is more than likely the reason why Arbitrum has like over half of the L2 market share, I believe it is. Mm -hmm. um, also, um, when it comes to compatibility with EBM, um, there are some there are some technical constraints that Optimism faces versus um, ABM, which is um, Arbitrum's virtual machine. Um, so there are some security uh some security limitations when you're comparing the two so i think that Artrim is beating them out on that i do think that double shark makes a great point in terms of the two second time and as a developer one of the things that are really useful for that is the consistency in the in the in the block time um even more so than just the speed. Maybe the users can consider the speed, but for things like farming, for example, you want to know when like your missions are going to be up. Um, so if you're doing this by block, um, then you want to know like that it's actually going to be predictably in a year or two years or however long you project it out to be. Um, that's a huge thing for developers. And yeah. some products have gotten that wrong. <laughs> um, also, I think they're fixing that is my understanding. The, the new stuff coming uh, out. Yeah, so the the L, okay. when you get the block number, it actually reports the L1 or Ethereum block number, and then you have to make a special call through their precompiles to get the L2 block number. So uh, they they I think it was interesting reading the blog back and forth between the two developers because they um, 
it, it, I mean, it seems like both projects are making changes to the way that they've designed their infrastructure based on things like you just pointed out, which is, you know, if you if the block numbers aren't uh, coming out as, you know, if you have 15 second blocks and then you move it to somewhere with five second blocks and using the block number as timing, then your your timing is now off. So, yeah, so That's huge. <laughs> it's huge. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, exciting times with the airdrop. Obviously, uh, OP has had a token for a while now. Uh, Mark, final thought on this. Arbitrum, 1.75 billion. Optimism, nearly a billion in TVL. I mean, they're not, you know, it's not like they're, you know, outpacing them massively. But, like, this isn't a zero-sum game, right? I mean, even if they have 2x the users now and all that kind of stuff, I mean, scaling Ethereum is the ultimate mission here. Like, do you, like, do you, do you see a world where there's any finite winner? Or is it, like, can they both coexist? And and have a bright future? It's a really tough question. I mean, this is, you know, is, is this like, you know, most other industries, like, you know, we, we ended up with basically, you know, computers, we ended up with basically with Microsoft Windows and the uh, Mac operating system. That was like 85%, 15%. With cars, we ended up with like three car manufacturers after having like hundreds. You know, will will coins, will layer ones be the same thing? Or, or, or is this different somehow when we end up with like 20 different options uh, as opposed to just sort of consolidating down into two or three. I, I kind of tend to think the, uh, the the former that we will end up with lots of different options for lots of different reasons as these things start to specialize. I think finance, like the, the, the rules of it are just different from most other markets um, because money is, is, you know, an abstraction of value. So, um, I, I do think the laws of physics are sort of different when it comes to that market. So, yeah, I think they can coexist ultimately is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think like 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 any industry, you see this mass expansion and then you see consolidation and we go through those different you know periods of business maturity uh, and there won't be 100 chains. There's no way that, that you know, like what we see right now, if you go to DeFi Llama and pull up chains and there's, you know, 85 of them, that, that can't be the future. But uh, I think both probably have a bright future. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Uh, make sure that you, if you haven't, go over to uh, arbitrum.foundation. This is the only website that you can check whether this is actually, whether you were eligible for the airdrop or not. Uh, tons of scams out there. So be careful. Uh, make sure you're going to the right place. So uh, I think it's time to talk a little macro. We, we usually open the show with it, um, but it hasn't been the greatest year, as we all know, for macro. So uh, banks, bonds, and volatility, I think we can probably call this section. And uh, Nick, I'm going to kick it over to you real quick. So um, kind of setting the stage. Like in the last week, it's been absolutely nuts. Like the, you know, the banking collapse of Silicon Valley, the closure of Silvergate, the closure of Signature, Credit Suisse in, in Europe, like in, and uh, the European Central Bank stepping in. Um, beyond that, we saw the largest single-day collapse in bond yields since Black Monday of 1987. Um, what do you make of all of this, man? There's like, there's, there's like, there's so much going on at once. It's hard to even have one sound conversation on one show because there's that much uh, moving parts. What, what do you want from me, Clay? You just said just very quickly, and you spoke without taking a breath for like four minutes. Um, <laughs> so, out, out of out of all the things that 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 all the things there are to talk about culminates into one question. Does the Fed keep raising rates? People in crypto, um, uh, for obvious reasons, have formed the view that, um, you know, this is going to signal some kind of pivot. Um, they're wrong, and they're wrong for a very simple reason. Um, what the Fed has done over the last few days and on the weekend 
um, has has staved off a you know a potential banking crisis that would would have been terrible and things like that. But it hasn't actually injected liquidity into the economy. It's injected liquidity into the banking sector to stop certain dynamics from playing out. It doesn't help Joey, who just lost his job. It doesn't help a small business whose revenues dropped 20%, right? It, 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 the, 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 there's a very big difference between the way that the money printer operated over the last couple of years and what just happened. So we, we need to separate the two things. Um, the, the Fed, and, and contrary to popular opinion, I keep making this point, um, Jay Powell is not an idiot, right? He made a lot of money in private equity. He understands markets. He understands the numbers. And um, he has egg on his face because of the inflation is transitory uh, line that he fed everybody. Um, that is not a fun place to be, okay? Um, they were wrong. They know they got it wrong. And uh, they have been very clear on, on their plans to rectify that mistake. And I quote, two weeks ago, okay, uh, in his report to Congress, the latest economic data have come in stronger than expected, which suggests that the ultimate level of interest rates is likely to be higher than previously anticipated. So the events of the last week have not changed the economic data. You're not going to see uh, a change, a drastic change in any of the indicators that they look at because they just made depositors whole right? Um, none of that changes. Now, a, a lot's been said that the ECB uh, raked 50 basis points. Yep. I was going to bring that up. And and like, I, I believe that the Fed is going to raise rates, okay? Because they told us they're going to raise rates. They don't want egg on their face. They've lost credibility because of what happened with the transitory bullshit. And they don't want to look silly again. So I take them at their word. Um, but the the European Union, the EU is different, okay? Their um, their CPI came in at 8.5% today, year on year. It was 8.5% last month, okay? That is drastically different from, from, from the situation in the US where CPI was 6.4% uh, a month ago and came in at 6% a couple of days ago. So you've got two different scenarios. The other thing is that the... the um, the funds rate in Europe is 3% and they hiked 50 basis points. The funds rate in the US is 4.58%. So you've got a different scenario there. Just because the ECB went up doesn't mean that the Fed's going to go up. I think they're going to raise because um, you either deal with inflation or it eats you up. There's no other discussion to have. 6% CPI is not a good number. It's better than last month, but it's not good. So... Um, you know, all the all the commentary around macro, it, it, it revolves around, are they going to raise or they're not going to raise? I believe they're going to stay the course because they need to. You've got to get inflation under control. And there is an argument to be made that their steps over the weekend actually helps them raise rates, right? If they let depositors cop it and businesses cop it and all of this chaos kind of spirals out of control, then that is extremely deflationary. People right. lose money. So, I mean, right? like credit right like it sucks credit out of the market like you see it it eliminates liquidity on its face right if they let banks fail okay so in that environment maybe they have a really tough decision to make in terms of raising rates by staving off that disaster 
just by backstopping it and saying, well, let, we'll give you a loan on your treasuries. Like that, that is a lot different than injecting money into the real economy. So I think they've set themselves up to be able to keep raising and raising aggressively until they get inflation under control. Then they'll do it the next domino to drop. Isn't it a little bit like stomping on the gas while pumping the brakes? Like, aren't they, you know, basically by ejecting $2 trillion into the economy while raising rates? Like, isn't that like going in two different directions at once? Or yeah, am I wrong about that? Yeah, but the right people they, get the money. That's, I think, the difference. And, and they're also not injecting $2 trillion into the economy, okay? All they've said is you've got these bonds that you might have to sell at a loss if you have to sell them today, right? We will effectively take them off your hands and give you the par value today so that you don't have that duration mismatch and you can make your depositors whole. So it's not like let's give everyone 1200 bucks so they can YOLO on options on Robinhood. This is completely different. And, and that's where, you know, the headlines on Twitter get it wrong. It's not an injection into the real economy. Um, theoretically, that makes sense. you know, it, you, you either let them fail and people lose money or we help you. Yeah, they're putting money into the economy, but it's different um, for that reason. Okay. Uh, Slovakia, I was curious, man, like the, the, like the bond volatility that we're seeing, um, you know, there's a lot made on Twitter that like, this is, you know, this is a historic times, like dating back to 1987, where the, you know, I think the two year dropped a full basis point, like in 48 hours, like this, you know, is that, how concerning is that to you? And, and like, is that something that, you know, everyone else, like, I don't feel like there's a lot of knowledge, uh, you know, in the crypto space about the bond market, but it really, like, yeah, this is one that I don't really understand. So if you can explain yeah. like, what just, what does this mean? Uh, you know, what, what just happened and what does it mean? I think we all appreciate it. Like, assume um, I'm dumb. That's probably not a bad no, look, I think, I think it, like, it's all linked together. Like, like Nick was talking from a from a macro sense, right? They keep uh, raising rates, which ultimately decreases what the fair value of these bonds are. Um, and, you know, Mark, you. Earlier, you you made the point. It seems like they stomping on the gas while while pumping the gas or stomping on the brakes, or you know they're going in both directions at once. And like about a week ago, I was speaking to Nick, and I was, it felt like Nick's always said on the show for as long as what I've watched, like they raise when they raise rates so much so quickly, things tend to break. And I think that from what I saw, I guess just the information that we have um, as just the average Joe out on the street is that they may have miscalculated those rate hikes and inadvertently put a lot of pressure on their banking system. And that is why that 2 million sort of fallback came in. That's why the statement on Sunday night came out about protecting the uninsured part is because, you know, if that statement didn't come out on, on, on Sunday night, we can all speculate what would have happened on Monday, um, but I'm pretty sure that there would have been a few more announcements over the next few weeks that more banks have gone. Um, now, that action alone, like just protecting that market, uh, while the banking system does have a wider impact. So it's hard to, it's hard to go, oh, you know, the bond rate is going to do this, because if you look at the trend of the bond rate over the last the three-month bond rate over the last 
year, two years, you can see it's it's been on a steady increase. Yeah. And interesting enough, on the eighth of March, like that's when you saw a drop in the in in the rates, right? And we know that the ninth is when you know um, SBB closed its door. Uh, Signature Bank, the uh, Signature Bank was then shut on the eleventh, and mon uh, and then that evening. They announced the, uh, you know, the the protection plan. Let's call it that. And then Monday, things started lifting up again to go towards the tra trajectory. And it's it's kind of weird because I think, you know, we don't have sort of the available information to know what the fence end goal is. Like there's lots of speculation in terms of what they're trying to do and how they're going about it. And it's difficult. And I, like I think anyone that gives like full confident commentary in terms of what exactly they're doing with everything has a slight level of speculation. And that's something I think I'm personally too scared to do because I don't have enough to make that conclusion. I feel like you could fall way off the mark. And it's weird. Like we are living in unprecedented times. Like for 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 three banks to close three banks of that size to close in within the space of the week is is or not within the space within the space of a month is quite Incredible. I mean, there were numerous stats flying around before before Silvergate went down on the amount of days since the major since the last major U.S. bank failed, right? And we're talking years. Now we have three in such a short period of time, and we know based on just common sentiment that they're not the only ones in trouble. Why would they do a three two trillion care package um, if there weren't other banks at risk? Um, well, Signature so, was, by some reports, not at risk and was just shuttered for other reasons. What so I'd say yeah. two out of the three are legit. Maybe the other one is not. I think it's time well, to hop in. That's that why topic. I say, like, we don't – well, we don't know – well, that's why I say we don't know what the Fed's end goal is, right? And I think whatever they're heading towards, I personally think they may have made – some miscalculations in terms of the impact of what they're doing and how they're going about if if that was the end goal to close those um rails into the industry they inadvertently jeopardized banks that have no exposure to it um so yeah i don't know clay you said you oh well, sorry no i mean i think Did like take you into that section yeah i mean one thing that i've taken from all this when, when we you know we've been talking about this stuff or weeks and weeks and you know, months if not you know at this point and in the beginning nick said this will be a 12 to 18 month problem and now i'm starting to think it's going to be an 18 to 24 month problem like there are landmines everywhere you know the, the fed wants two percent inflation they've got now more obstacles in their way to get there they can't keep rise, uh, hiking rates at the same pace because they've just broken the banking system like it's gotten so much more complex that um i yeah i have a hard time seeing like i i I believe that we could be in a position of like the 80s where we live with inflation that's like four to five percent and that becomes the new norm. Um, I don't know if I'm off base on that, but I just I don't see a way that they can continue, um, you know, demand destruction to the path to two percent. So I could be wrong, but I guess what I'm saying is um, this is a much bigger, longer issue than I thought it was going to be. And, um, you know, I, I think having a plan and a strategy in place for whatever you're investing in is the key. And I think it's you know it's it's often overlooked, and it's just like buy token number go up. That's not really where we are right now. So um, that was that was a big takeaway for me that this is probably going to go on a lot longer than we think. Nick, anything to add? All good. 
Yes. Yeah, so the, 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 um, when these things happen, um, so when rates go up, things in the economy break, there are hundreds of things that could break. We don't know what they're going to be. When I started using that line, um, you know, nine months ago, I didn't know that it was going to be duration mismatch that caused problems. But the fact of the matter is that um, this is just the first thing. I don't know what the second thing is or the third thing is, but it's never one thing. Um, when, when Bear Stearns went bust, I think it was the 9th of March, 2008. Don't quote me on the date, but it was early March, 2008. So Bear Stearns at the time was the fifth biggest bank in the US, okay? So that's a big deal. The market bottomed exactly a year after that date, give or, yeah. give or take a day or two. So um, big delay. Big, yeah, because a lot more things broke. Now, um, real earnings for US citizens, for US consumers have been down, decreasing every month for 23 months in a row. Do you know the last time that happened? Never. It's never happened before. Okay. And 64% of Americans leave paycheck to paycheck and their ability to fund their lifestyles, extravagant or otherwise, <laughs> this is mostly concerning people that don't live extravagant life, extra, extra, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, I got you. Extravagant life. It's, it's been getting worse every month yeah. for two fucking years. Okay, yeah. so if you're going to look for what the next thing is that's going to break, um, individual families and people living paycheck to paycheck, the, the pain just didn't start. They've been under extreme pressure for the better part of two years um, because COVID was a part of that, right? A lot of people, you know, you got your $1,200 from the government or whatever. Maybe you made some money, you know, fucking around on Robin Hood. But a lot of people have literally been treading water for a couple of years. So more things are going to break um, and it's much harder to patch up the, the the consumer if the consumer gets hurt and people, you know, uh, become destitute for lack of a better, a, a better word. It's hard for the money to reach that individual. It's easy to backstop the banks. You make an announcement, you move money from one account to another account, bang. Sunday, it was chaos, sorry. Friday, it was chaos. No. Monday morning, we're all good. You can't do that when millions of people are in are in dire straits. And and um, that pressure has been building on them for two years. So I, I, I'm concerned with what happens there. Okay. Yeah, and, and still somehow, some way, we've seen Bitcoin go from 16,500 to 26.5,000. So uh, clearly, you know, there's, there's the, the market is... is Pricing in some type of QE to give confidence to risk on assets in some way, shape, or form. So I'm I'm impressed by the the, the resilience of what we've seen from Bitcoin. So something that we need, I think we need to switch gears here and and say what you know what could be a blocker for this for this space. And I think that you know Mark, you alluded to earlier the closure of um, Signature and uh, Silvergate and all of that. And I think there's probably a lot of differing opinions on this panel of this group of like what's actually going on how financially distressed were they and is this an attack on the crypto industry because um you see everybody from brian armstrong and uh you know coinbase you know a lot of folks coming out and saying look operation choke point 2.0 if that's what you want to call it is a real thing uh and 
a video of Tom Emmer, who's uh, the House Majority Whip, I believe, uh, came out two days ago, and I'm going to play it for you now. Um, and it's about the Biden administration weaponizing, um, you know, against crypto. And so, more importantly, uh, Neil, why is our government going after uh, the crypto uh, business? Uh, Signature, they they initially announced that the the issue was they were banking crypto and making loans. They weren't. They were just banking crypto, and even the uh, the New York Financial Services uh, Department, the head of that, has acknowledged crypto had nothing to do with Signature. Barney Frank, Barney Frank, the former chair of the House Financial Services Committee, has said uh, it appears that this is an attack on crypto. Uh, in fact, two sources have told Reuters that anybody who buys Signature has to agree they will not bank crypto. So it's really interesting, Neil. More questions to be uh, answered. If you look at the Fed, which just announced that. This this summer, it's going to release or going to kick off its FedNow program, which is a payment system that would settle payments within seconds. It's interesting. Is our government competing with the private sector right now? And are these banks that are banking crypto uh, actually the target of, uh, of their uh, their angst? That's a fascinating you know, subset to the story. It might be these. That is a fascinating subset to the story. And I think that's where we need to begin. So, um, you know. I think it's clear that the SEC is coming after crypto for a variety of reasons. But like, you know, Mark, I know you have pretty strong opinions on this. What do you what do you make of the signature uh, situation? And if you're reading between the lines, what is your take? Yeah, I mean, I don't think you have to read too deeply between the lines. It's, uh, it's sort of like a cudgel to the head. Right. So there's no no real reading between the lines on that. Um, but I do. I do. Look, I do think this is an attack on crypto. We, we've felt this long before this past weekend when we had these extraordinary bank collapse events. Um, but I, I think it's absolutely extraordinary that Barney Frank of, you know, the Frank Dodd Act after 2008, you know, the guy who got in there and started writing legislation to prevent these kind of bank collapses from happening again, who is also on the board of Signature Bank, uh, comes out and says just bluntly, we were, we were not insolvent. We were a solvent bank. We were surprised when we got closed. Uh, there was no real reason for them to close us. And they came after us because we serviced crypto. Uh, we banked crypto companies. And we had an internal network called Signet, uh, which, which is basically a private version of what FedNow is proposing to do, right? Yeah. So, so you do have the federal government creating products that compete with private banks. Um, so I, 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 you know, the, fact that I, the fact that Barney Frank would say that is just extraordinary. Um, and somebody asked him, uh, like after this all happened, you know, is that legal for a regulating entity to come in and just kill your bank, shut it down without actually having a reason? And Barney, Barney Frank's answer was, well, I can't comment on that because I'm a board member. And if, if there is litigation, I would be involved in it. Um, however, I do think you ask a very interesting question, and it's a question that should be answered. So, you know, I, you know, it does appear that regulators just killed the bank they didn't like just because yeah. they didn't like what it was doing. And and there's more to the story than we know. I mean, you know, so I mean, the other side to that is a he's not he's not he's biased. Right. He's part of the he's part of, of the course he's biased situation. Right. But, you know, but to your point, you know, he's he's I'm sure there's some merit to what he's saying. You know, on the other side, it's, uh, you know, the apparently they were being investigated for for like embezzlement and money laundering, like not. But so um, is every bank always. Right. Fair. <laughs> I mean, if you look at the amount of money laundering that's gone on through legit banks, it's absolutely insane. Yep. And it's continuous.
So Sorry, you know, just- outside of like writing, you know, so he, you know, same guy, Tom Emmer, uh, sent a letter to the FDIC chairman on this. You know, my thing is like, so let's say that there there is, uh, you know, weaponization uh, in the Biden administration going after this space, which I think it's pretty clear the SEC is certainly coming after this space. But besides writing a strongly worded letter and saying, you know, come up in front of the, uh, you know, the financial committee, like, what can these guys really do? Like, is there, you know, I don't know if there's anything, like, if there's any tools in the, you know, in the, in the arsenal to uh, to stop this. That's that's my concern. I don't know if anybody shares my sentiment there, but I, I just don't think that like you could do much. It does feel like all they can do is send e- you know mean emails yeah. and uh, you know and wag their fingers at people when they d- appear before them, right? But it but nothing really changes. Well, I think they I think they they can over a long period of time do things for, you know pass laws you know get you know, refer to to Department of Justice, um, but all that takes times. And in the meantime, they just keep hitting these things almost like a DDoS attack with, you know, new attack, new attack, new attack, new attack. Before the industry can respond, they can vandalize the entire industry on a massive scale uh, before the years can pass to actually unwind them and get to the right answer. But by that time, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's going to be really, really interesting to see how it plays out. Uh, Double Sharp, do you have an alternative take on this or do you agree that there could be something yeah, more, more uh, I, I have an alternative and I agree. I mean, there could be, but there could not be like, I, I don't think that any of us have insider information about it. Um, and I think I said this somewhere else, but like, I generally like Barney Frank, but if I take a step back, he's on the board of the bank that he just got shut down. And he's like, of course it shouldn't have got shut down. He's on the board. Like, why would he be like, yeah, we should have gotten shut down. Like, I think that actually would have been a crazier statement from him being like, yeah, it, it wasn't working. I mean, so I, I would expect him to say things like that. It doesn't mean that he's wrong, but I also take it with a grain of salt. Um, you know, I, I do think it's, it, it is tricky because I do think that there's probably some people who are not necessarily acting in crypto's best interests, who truly believe that what they're doing is protecting, um, you know, retail investors, there's some people who just hate crypto. There's some people who've been, you know, you have large donations from XYZ and then that's, you know, motivating them to support, you know, some financial institution, traditional financial institution over crypto. So I think there's just, you know, my take is that there's so many different potential factors at play and I don't have enough information to, to make a call, like just from an outsider looking at signatures financials that were public they didn't look amazing so it's not and like maybe they were not insolvent but if svb goes down the contagion might have made them insolvent within days so it might have been a kind of thing of like he's not lying but maybe they were about to be insolvent maybe not i don't know yeah i mean that's frightening part i think is like we don't we don't know the answer to that question and 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 they they stepped in yeah nick please so um, in, in one of the Batman movies, um, there was kind of like this guy that worked at um, Wayne Enterprises or something. Anyway, he finds out Bruce Wayne is Batman. And, and he goes in and he confronts Morgan Freeman's character. Mm-hmm. And he says, look, I know, I know this guy's Bruce Wayne. I know he's Batman. I want 10 million. And I want a private jet and I want an island and I want et cetera, et cetera. And Morgan Freeman, without skipping a beat, basically says to him, says, okay, let me get this straight. So your position is that one of the richest, most powerful, well-connected people on earth 
spent his nights dressed up as a vigilante going around and kicking the shit out of all the criminals <laughs> in the world. And your plan is to blackmail this individual? That's your plan. This guy is this big monster, all-powerful, um, you know, uh, uh, lethal weapon. And your plan is to blackmail. It reminds me of this situation where if the view is, and I don't know if it should be the view, it looks pretty sus to me. Um, so I'm with Mark to a certain extent. But um, I see the same people that hold that view, that the government, who can effectively do whatever the hell it wants to whoever it wants, right? Let's just be frank about that. Yeah. Is coming after this tiny industry that's pretty much hated across the board because of what's happened over the last two years, right? And if that's true, you're bullish. What? Yeah. What do you? It's, what do you? It's a landmine. I mean, you're, you're bullish Ethereum. You're bullish these tokens. You can't believe both things. In my opinion, it would be foolish to do so. So I don't know if they're coming after it, but I've mentioned that many times on this show. I was a professional poker player when the US government decided that wasn't going to be a thing anymore for people in the US. And they shut it down. It happened. And they shut it down without having to close a bank. So if they just close three banks, um, the fact that the market is going up tells me either the market is stupid or, or, it's just a big conspiracy theory and that's not actually happening. Um, both things can't be true at the same time, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, so you make a great point and, and I want to, it's like the perfect segue. So thank you for uh, the lead in that you didn't know you're making. But uh, Raul Paul comes out and says the US is dragging, stumbling, fumbling its crypto regulation. This is going to result in someone else picking up the bag, taking the lead. And the US, it's, it's, the it's actually quite a long post. Uh, really well written and and pretty good. I would you know recommend go check it out um, on his Twitter. But he basically says that the UK is going to be that place that takes the lead. Um, CZ came out with a tweet that supported it, which he since deleted, which I'm not really sure why. Uh, and then Brian Armstrong has come out with, uh, and I've been seeing kind of writing on the wall here about Singapore uh, and Coinbase. So they've been talking more and more about it. Uh, but basically, where I'm going with this is all three of these folks minus CZ's deleted tweet. Uh, say that you know innovation is leaving the U.S. and then other people are going to pick up the you know the base and so to me that makes perfect sense and that is not the like you 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 might cut the head off crypto in the United States but it doesn't mean that it's going to stop like I just don't see it not shifting to somewhere else so Buns as a builder if this is the case like would you have the dedication to move somewhere else if, you, if that would like if it you know if London becomes the spot would you uh, you know actually like pick up and move because the U.S. has done so much damage to itself that this isn't a place you would want to be? Oh, you already know the answer to that. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> but do you see somebody else USA. picking up pieces? Like, like if the U.S. Uh, fumbles? We'll figure it out. We like money too much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, like if there's an alternative market, like, do you, you know, what do you guys, like, do you think, like, where do you think it's going to be? And like, because I, I, I don't think that this is sustainable. I, I do not think that crypto can thrive and live on with the current, uh, you know, administrative pressure that it has on all fronts, from banking to regulation to lack of clarity to everything and exchanges. Like I, my, I got an email from Gemini. I, I could not transfer money out of Gemini to MetaMask because it was like a protectionary mechanism. I've never seen this in my life. Um, so like I couldn't get money into DeFi. 
Um, yeah, which I wonder how much of this is manipulation and intentional fear mongering too. I, I mean, like we saw just like virtually overnight, Bitcoin dip down pretty low just to spring right back up. I mean, how convenient is that? Um, and I think that it, it's always kind of following these bad news events that um, Bitcoin just miraculously rebounds. It's like, who's buying this dip? You know, so really, it really makes you wonder. I mean, if I had a lot, a lot of money and I had a lot of control and influence and I, and I wanted to get a good deal, I, I would probably do a lot of the things that are happening. Yeah. I mean, particularly when you have your own agenda, which we don't know. I don't even think we fully know what the picture is yet of what that agenda may be uh, domestically here. Uh, Slovaki, what do you think, man? You think that, you know, London or Singapore or some other place uh, could become the, the crypto hub, if you will, like it's actually friendly and, and, you know, the companies migrate there. I do, but I don't think it will be London or the UK. Like they've got <laughs> too much of their own shit going on. Like they're so busy renegotiating deals they had in place for Brexit that <laughs> they don't have time to to focus on that to take this regulatory arbitrage. They they have other issues. Um, but I do think it's a space uh, for the Asian markets to to step in and um, to become the front runner uh, with crypto friendly. Uh, environments. I think, I think one of the things that, one of the stumbling blocks, I think that is happening in the U.S. is that, you know, the politicians and regulators and whoever, right, they actually need regulation. Like it's part of the fabric. They don't know how to function without it. They need a framework, and they need to be told you can do this and you can't do this. Now, you know, for whatever reason, right, the SEC or whoever should be the regulating authority hasn't done this because they either don't understand the scope of uh, blockchain and DeFi and NFTs and the whole industry, or they don't want to. So when it's one of those, if it's one of those two outcomes, right, their solution would be to shut it down, right? Uh, because they don't, under, like, if they can't put regulations in place, they cannot control it. So why would they let it survive? Um, and it seems like that is what they're doing. And like the more and more pressure that they put on, they, as you said, it's not going to stop innovation. It's not going to. It's just going to slow it down in the U.S. somewhat. And you just see it go offshore um, because yeah. there are places that will welcome it. Just like how you see in traditional finance, there are many different tax havens, right? And they live quite fine. Um, just outside normal operating. I mean, the UK, you look at Channel Islands that is just off its shores is, I mean, that's part of the UK, but not part of the EU because it's a tax haven. You could see loads of setups happen like that um, globally. And, you know, it's, um, it's one of those things, like we always talk about how the industry and DeFi and everything needs to evolve. Like this interaction with the real world or re like, traditional finance is an important piece that needs to go through the evolutionary process and you know we're on the forefront of it well said man i think that's a, a fantastic perspective and you're absolutely right like what i see happening is death by a thousand cuts it's like we're just going to keep chipping away chipping away until you lose your your luster to be here like we may not be able to shut you down today we're gonna we're gonna make it so uh difficult to be in the space that you just don't want to anymore and that's going to drive people, you know, out of here. And so 
Uh, I guess we'll see how it goes, but uh, I think I have confidence that we'll continue to see the industry thrive. It just may be somewhere else. Uh, and then we have to figure out how to navigate around that. So uh, it will be interesting to see you know, where that ends up being or how this plays out. But I'm happy that we have people like Tom Emmer on our side, at least. Uh, there's someone trying to stand up for the industry and, and, and you know, get a fair shake here. So uh, on to the last topic of the day, chat GPT. So it is all the rage. I see people posting, you know, 15 million business ideas that chat GPT has given them and everyone's going to be a millionaire from chat GPT and yada, yada, yada. But I was curious, um, you know, I saw this post and double sharp you sent it to me and this will be a quick one for us, but like, you know, is there an impact here for crypto for, you know, this space when it comes to GPT four and, and just AI in general? Uh, I, I found this to be super interesting. Like, is this real? Like, can you actually have code audits from GPT four that are going to be legit? Like that's that's kind of my question, just holistically. Um, I would so in that tweet it said review, not audit, which I think is important because gotcha. you I wouldn't rely on um, you know GPT four, maybe not five. Eventually, I think you'll get to a point where you could trust it a little bit more for something like an audit. But even then, a lot of times they're more looking at patterns like it's trained on on past data, so you see. Um, it's easier to identify patterns that it's seen in the past than to come up with something novel. But what, um, so Contract Reader is made uh, by this dev, at least one dev, I, I'm sure he's working with some other people called Backseats. He does um, NFT development and has done some cool stuff on Ethereum. So I follow him and saw this, this tweet the other day. It's something that I actually had considered, but, you know, didn't, didn't put in any effort to actually develop it. So I thought it was awesome that he actually put it together and I tried it out on their site that it, it is actually, it's, I mean, better than I would have expected. I think like you can just put in a contract address. It looks at the, the code and like generally can kind of tell you what's going on with it. This is a DEX contract. This is an NFT. It doesn't say like, this is a security vulnerability, but it does have a section that says like, here's some things you might want to check out uh, for security. So it is like pointing you in the right direction, which I think is the right way to approach these things right now. You don't want to say like, this is a security flaw because like, you know, there might be a good reason why that code is there and it looks like a security flaw, but this other thing does X, Y, Z and that makes it all safe. So I wouldn't necessarily rely on it to be the, you know, the final, uh, you know, filter. But right. that said, it's pretty awesome for being able to like get a, a little bit more, um, you know, insight onto where you might want to be looking. And then, you know, I'm talking about it from a developer perspective, but what's even more dramatic, I think, is for, you know, an end user that's not a developer. People always say, do your own research, go look at the contract. You know, nobody knows how to developer. Like, you can't yeah, read, come on. read it. So what this does is it, it takes that solidity code and kind of, you know, puts it into terms that you can understand. And it might not be 100% correct, but, you know, nothing against contract reader or AI or anything in, in, in general, but like, just take it, you know, make sure that you're following it up with a little bit of research. It does get things wrong, but for users, it's awesome to be able to say, this is what this contract does. This is who developed it. Here's some places that might be a security risk. Cause then now you have something where if you are friends with someone who's a developer, you know, um, you know, you have somebody who is a little bit more technical instead of saying, can you review this whole contract? You can say, Hey, I have a question about this one thing. It's <laughs> right. a lot easier yeah. to, um, you know, uh, either confirm or allay your, your concerns about something. So 
you know, crypto, yes, I think there's an impact, not in the, um, you know, AI token meme things, mm -hmm. um, but just from a, you know, in the same way that all industries are going to be impacted from coming up, like helping to form strategies, helping to edit content, helping to, you know, put together presentations that fit within a certain time limit. There's a lot of things that AI is really good at that's applicable to all industries because, yeah. you know, if you have a, a crypto protocol, you have to do AMAs and make blog posts and make tweets and all that stuff. And all of these AI things are, are going to, especially if they're like, if they have knowledge about that domain, they're able to put together stuff that's relatively high quality, which maybe isn't what you're just going to post, but it, it gives you a huge head start. So my wife says that, uh, interns need to be worried because that's, yeah, that's what, right yeah. what it's doing right now it's like a lot of the like front work that that um you know you you typically would stereotype an intern is doing so yep. it's also making rapid advances i mean nobody you know general public wasn't really paying attention to this um a few years ago and then within the last year you've seen how how much things have improved from like these low quality generative images to like photorealistic ones and you know gpt 3.5 or gpt 3 couldn't answer questions about you know physics and gpt 3.5 was a little bit better and gpt 4 is much better at it there's actually an interesting chart that shows the different um tests that they gave it and then how much better yeah i saw like it, the previous it passed one. the it's, bar and like did all like it passed like every major exam you could possibly and, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And the old one couldn't do that. So it's, it's yeah. awesome. I, and you know, it's, you know, going back to the contract reader thing, I think it's, that's actually a better implementation than what I was originally thinking. I was like, oh, this would be cool to just scan a bunch of contracts and see if there's any vulnerabilities and, you know, I can help, help fix them or whatever. And I wasn't really <laughs> thinking about it from an end user perspective. Like that's, I think a lot more valuable is, is taking something technical and complex and sort of breaking it down in a way that, a non-technical person can understand. Yeah. And unlike cool. Rugdoc, it has to take bribes. Huh? Look at that. Can't <laughs> <laughs> bribe. Yeah. Well, we uh we are gonna get out of here, guys. That is the last topic of the day. If you're like if you're watching this video, hit the like button, subscribe to the channel, let your friends know that we are live every day at noon, Monday through Friday with block bites. Uh, Bitcoin still above 26,000. There's a lot of things to be excited about. Uh, tune in every single day. We're here to hang out with you guys. Thanks uh, to the 73 of you who are here. From myself, Double Sharp, Suvaki, Nick Dracon, Mark Jeffrey, and OX Buns. Have a great weekend, a great St. Patty's Day. Be safe. See you next Friday. Peace. <laughs>